Hi, this is For the Girls Podcast. I am Nick Westray. I'm Jason Black. Uh, And this is a podcast about queer fandom of female performers. Yes, and we are releasing some, we're we're opening the vault. The vault was always free, but we're not putting it to the front of the line because we're not, uh, we're not starting our new season until March. We did that last year. We're doing it again, uh, just so that we can start stocking up and uh, getting all our guests together. And you know what? We need a little break. We need to take a little little break. break. We need a breather. Yeah, we'll be back in March, but until then, we there are some episodes that we think you all have been neglecting, that maybe you forgot about, or maybe you want to hear again, and we're putting them to the front of the line. And what more is it importantly, this week, babe? More importantly, they're fabulous. What? They're just they're fabulous. They're so good. These are our favorites. These are our well, favorites. Some, some, some. So they're all our favorites. Yes, that's true. But, all of our children are our favorites, but these are some of our favorites. Some of our favorites, and like they said, these are some of our, 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 our first ones. This is some of our first ones. Some of our back catalog for all yep. of you new listeners. So um, who do we have this week? Babs. Babs, Babs, Babs. Babs, Babs, Babs Streisies. With an amazing guest, Thomas J. Ryan, one of the great actors of stage and screen and a dear friend to the podcast. Tom is a Barbara savant. He is a genius artist and a hilarious True person. historian, true historian. A true historian. I can't believe this episode isn't eight hours long. It could have been, but it's one of our earliest. This was in person pre-pandemic 2019. Us, Tom, and Barbara Streisand. Yeah, uh, I, I remember that episode Tom brought over his Barbara book from his child, his sacred Barbara book. And that's something that Nick can always love when someone brings a memento from their collection. An artifact. An artifact. A fan, a fan held effect. Held on to, yeah, to kind of source and show and i mean it was just everything tom could have his own barber podcast i mean really he should just he yeah. should and he we're gonna have to, we want to have tom back tom we want to have you back we want to you Dying come to have on tom back got it we, we love you tom we're, we're we want to open the barber vault with you again but here we go here is here is our og barber episode with tom ryan we love you battle angels enjoy love you. stay safe Mwah. bye Hi. Hi. Welcome to, uh, <laughs> trying to not be screaming right now. Welcome to For the girls. girls. It's a podcast about you and your diva. It's gays gabbing about girls. It's uh, about queer people and uh, their love and worship for iconic female performers. And today, we today have, we have Thomas J. Ryan. <sighs> Hi, Thomas. Tom is an incredible actor who you will probably know from stage and screen from films like Henry Fool. I mean, so many Hal Hartley films. Mm-hmm. With um, And on stage, he's currently in The Nap on Broadway. He was in The Temperamentals. He was in The Little Foxes with me. He was in 10 out of 12 at Soho Rep, which is still one of my favorite performances I've ever seen. And we're so um, excited because he is going to be talking about... Barbara. Barbara. I'm so nervous about this one. I know. This is a big one, you this, guys. The, Love the it big, or hate it, it's of, a big one. Yeah, it's like a mountain. Top that three I, biggest ones. Yes. When we start when we started thinking about this podcast, I thought, oh, we'll have to wait six months to interview Tom about Barbara. We'll really have to figure <laughs> yeah, it out. We can't drop this right away. 
Yeah, but you guys need to keep me focused because, you know, you could just wind me up and I'd go. So you just need to keep me uh, in line. And if I start meandering into unpleasant areas, bring me back. Or maybe you want the unpleasant. Well, we we want it all. I mean, I also, and I say this, like, we're not going to cover everything. Yeah. And especially with with someone like her career, there's going to have to be multiple more episodes right. dedicated to this goddess. Right, and, I, and, we, and, and you know, books have been written about this subject, not only her relationship to gay men, but her relationship to Jewishness in America, her relationship to women and the women's... So we're just never going to take her all that on. Her relationship to manicures? Hey, now. It's a little early for that kind <laughs> of behavior, Nick. But no, but talk, I mean, well, her relationship to the hands, I mean, that's iconic We had me. a whole conversation about her hands the other day. You should have. I touched one of those hands. Oh, just going nice. right into it. The, her, mm, I did. I think it's one of the most beautiful hands. And no, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. Um, and the, and, and well, how she uses them to maximum dramatic effect. Sure. Well, beauty and Barbara are just an. It, it, that's a conversation on its own. You know what made. What made this girl who was so clearly plain? who was so clearly just some, uh, you know, miskite from Brooklyn, what made her not only have the force of will to become a star, but beyond that to will you to find her beautiful? Mm. This is unlike anybody else, I think. And, you know, she never, not only did she never lose the Jewish quality to her nature, she made it central to her perform her persona. And she said not only all of that, I will not be the character woman. I'm not going to be Miss Marmelstein. I won't be. Everybody was ready for a very nice career to happen for her as a Broadway supporting right. <laughs> actress, you know, with a lovely singing voice and good comic snap. But she said, no, I'm a movie star. And not only am I a movie star, I'm not a clown. I am the equal of Robert Redford as a romantic figure. This is huge. And I think it's so interesting. I have great empathy, always have for her, how much beauty matters to her. You know, it's not. she changed the face of it. I mean, uh, she, uh, it completely. And people are like, completely. these things make you ugly. And she says, no, watch this. Yeah. This is what I'm going to highlight. Okay, this is what I wanted to read from this book, but we're so early, I'm going to read it because it goes directly to what we're Wait, well, Let's talk about this book. What is this book? This book I have in front of me, I call it the Bible. You can call it uh, <laughs> Barbara, the First Decade by <laughs> James Spada. It was published in 1974, and it was the first book published about her, basically just about the minutiae of the first 10 years of that career. And a little bit about the childhood, but really goes through every television special, every album, and so forth. But um, there's, a, there's a lot of reviews quoted in here, and I want to read one that is actually a bad one. Uh, there's only a couple in here that he uses, but I think it's really instructive about the issue of beauty and how controversial it was in the beginning. And how did you get this book? Oh, I stole it out of the library when I was 12. (laughs) (laughs) And you will not find that an uncommon story. Um, This is a review for My Name is Barbara, her first television Mm -hmm. special, which is rather a landmark. Uh, TV special, won lots of Emmys and Peabody Awards and really redefined television variety specials. But this is a review from, believe it or not, The Village Voice in 1965. And I'm just going to read it, part of it, just a little bit. Barbara comes on too strong for my taste. 
It is no secret by now that the Trojan War was not fought on her behalf, and that she looks and she talks like somebody's unmarried sister on the loose in the borscht belt. There's the matter of Barbara's nose, you see, and how much integrity it took for her to keep it as it is. I personally don't mind her keeping it. It's her flaunting it as the latest Paris style that I find peculiar. Edith Piaf and Helen Morgan were never the comeliest chanteuses in the world, but they didn't flaunt their plainness. They endured it. Ew. Disgusting. Amazing, right? I mean, on so many levels. Uh, how can something be so misogynist, so anti-Semitic? And I know. So <laughs> because they were threatened by her. Yeah. I think, it was, I think they were really threatened that this person was th- at, already at this power. Because when she came out, she had already come out with, with her first album two years before that? Um, three years. Three she, years. She'd had about five albums at this point, And she was a uh, big, you know, funny girl was running on Broadway when this was when that TV special happened. And um, if you look at the TV special now, indeed, you know, there's great attention put to lighting and angles and how beautiful she looks. And we really forget it now, but that was jarring for people. What do you, what do you pretend (laughs) that you look like a great beauty? This is preposterous, but then, oh my God, you are really beautiful. You know, it, it was a very complicated package for people to take in. This word, this word flaunt, I find I just it hit me as a gay person because I remember that I guess you know when I was growing up or when I after I came out like the idea of like I'm fine with it just don't flaunt it of course of don't course. flaunt it and this idea like oh of tolerance of something and that was it's obviously so anti-Semitic it's like just yeah. don't flaunt your Jewishness yeah. and she was having pride she was part of a pride movement I'm sure within the Jewish community of yeah. being like I'm proud of my Jewishness yeah. it's what makes me beautiful it is essential to my beauty yeah there's no question and it's it's instructive to me that it comes from the Village Voice which uh, you know it certainly was known as the most progressive paper of of, 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 of that right. time our time and, um, you know, that, that you would not hesitate to write something like that about a young woman uh, and publish it in a progressive liberal paper in the mid-60s is just really interesting. So, okay, so you said you got that book when you were 12. Mm-hmm. Okay, you stole this book yeah, when you I were did, 12. Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm assuming you were in love with her. Well, Before this. yeah, my, tell, tell my Barbara that. story, as far as I <laughs> uh-huh. came to her, um, I was born in Pittsburgh in 1962. In 1968, we moved out of America and went to Germany because of my dad's work. And we lived there for four years from 68 to 72, which were big Barbara years. That was the, those were the years when the Funny Girl movie came out, when she exploded. And I, but my first memory is right before we moved. We still lived in America, and it was my dad's birthday. I must have been five. And my mother said, we're going to go to the record store, you and me, Tommy, and we're going to pick something to give your father for his birthday. And you're going to get to choose it. She picked out (laughs) an album by Barbara Streisand. I don't know which one. She picked out an album by Andy Williams. I looked at the two album covers and without hesitating said, I want Andy Williams because that lady looks scary. I was scared by that. Too much, too much for me at five. Mm -hmm. It's like the man looks friendly. The man looks nice. She looks like, wow, too much. I can't take all that. 
And so we gave him the Andy Williams record. And that was that. Then we moved to Germany, and after about a year of living in Germany, my father came back from a business trip to America with her first greatest hits album, Barbra Streisand's Greatest Hits, 1969. Had all the stuff from the 60s on it. And that's, that was pretty amazing to me. I wore the grooves out on that record. And what's interesting looking back is I, I first experienced her only as a sound on a record completely separated from um, persona, the way she looked, mm -hmm. wow. her backstory, right. uh, any of her acting, anything like that. It was just the sound of a voice on a record. And the sound of the voice on the record was so compelling to me that I couldn't put the record off. I, I played it till we came back to the States. And when we came back to the States in the summer of 72, that fall... Funny Girl was shown on TV for the first time wow. on network TV, the Sunday night movie event. Mm -hmm. And my parents, as I say, had liked her. And they said, oh, this movie's on. We're really excited. It came out while we were away. Now we can see it on okay. TV. So we all gathered around. It was a big event. I was mildly interested. The movie began, and I remember the night. The movie began. My parents were enjoying the movie. And for me... It was like a chip was being implanted into my brain. <laughs> it was so elemental to me. It was as if this movie was speaking to me in a code. I, I, I didn't quite know the code. I didn't know at 10 years old how, what the code was saying. But I knew that something far deeper was happening to me than was happening to them. The, the woman standing alone on a stage in an empty theater singing, I am the greatest star. I am by far and no one knows it. I mean, this was, I didn't know what that did to me, but it was a picture of a person who had been unseen, who felt unseen, saying, you will see, you will see me. And, it, and it's coming from inside me, the, the power to make. The to, confidence. To, the confidence, the will. To, to make that happen. And somebody so vulnerable and yet so strong, so the, 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 all, all of it, all of it. And that was where the penny dropped. And that, that was it. where it all began. Yeah, then I, then I was in a great position. Cause we got to talk about that movie. I mean, yeah, whatever you want to The most talk. gorgeous. I mean, we just have to go there yeah, for a second. One of the, the great film debuts. I'm sure there are some in the 30s and 40s that are great uh, as well. Ms. Midler and the Rose is a great film debut too. And... But um, something really magical magical happens in that film in many ways, partly, I think, because she's so charismatic in front of the camera and nobody quite knew if she would be or not. You know, she's a, clearly a movie star from the moment. Oh, she knows where she's yeah. going. Don't tell me not to live, just sit and putter. Life's candy and the sun's a ball of butter. Don't bring around a cloud to rain on my If someone takes a spill, it's me and not you Who told you you're allowed to rain on my parade I'll march my band out I'll beat my drum And if I'm found out Your turn at bat, sir At least I didn't fake it Hat 
So, I guess I didn't make it, but whether I'm the rose of sheer perfection, a freckle on the nose of life's complexion, the cinder or the shiny apple of its eye. I gotta fly once, I gotta try once, only can die once, right, sir? There's emphasis on the, on the wrong syllable, like shun. Yes. Shun, you know the, the way it rolls forward. Do you think she did that? Was that her inspiration? Yes. If you listen to the Broadway version of it, none of that exists in it. Huh. I'm sure she came in and said, "I've been singing this eight times a week for all these years. I know the way I want this orchestration to go." And I'm sure working with brilliant Hollywood orchestrators, but that kind of phrasing, you don't impose that on a singer because they wouldn't be able to do it. Right. That has to come. That's organic. organic. It's I it really this song and it's so much of Barbara. We talk about like when do you go to the well of this singer? And I so often go to Barbara if I need to feel powerful or confident or I need like a boost if I need to be boosted. Mm. You know, because she has that. I just think of the sheer power in that voice. Yeah. So I just have to write this down because we're probably going to cut. We cut this in the first time. I we did this the, the kind of when did you know you were gay. Hmm. Or when did you know you were a different, a different little boy? Mm-hmm. And Nick and I had just probably seen this movie version, and I was out with my parents at like a Circuit City, and I found, and I that was the first time I realized that there was multiple versions of something because I was going to go get the Funny Girl soundtrack, and I saw the other, you know, for the for the Broadway production, and I had that was a revelation in and of itself because I was like, oh, there I could get multiple versions of something. <laughs> there was something else before this, and I got it. And it was, it was like, I got, you got the soundtrack. Well, I try, I, I, I found it. And my dad at the, at the store said to my mom, why does he need this? We can't get this for him. And my mom said, because he wants it, Greg. And I remember, and I remember thinking, well, cause it's great. I mean, it's just great music. But I remember in that moment, that was one of my first clear moments of being like, I'm not doing something normal. A little shame in there. I'm starting to understand that this wasn't. Yeah. What everyone else was doing, yeah, and then yeah. and then shame followed that. Do you remember the first time someone made you feel shameful about liking Barbara, or did that ever happen? <laughs> that happens more now. <laughs> um, back, back, I, I, I think that 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 uh, you know, my dad loved Barbara, oh. and my. There, there, Barbara crosses a kind, lot of kind of weird lines where it wasn't automatic code to my dad that I liked Barbara Streisand, that something was off about me as a little boy. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, just, uh, it's just interesting to me. I never really faced that. They embraced it. They, they gave me full reign on that, my parents. And I was an only child. And they really, you know, my room was covered in pictures and posters. And that and, generation loved her. That generation of my father's, right? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, she was a really popular record. She was never a really as as strange as she was in the beginning. She, she her first albums were all top five albums. People immediately responded to her as a recording artist, and surely a lot of gay people did, but surely a lot of mainstream people must have too. And because she was, she was also always very classy. She wasn't. She wasn't. Um, well, she eschewed doing the pop hits. She did what she wanted to do. Well, she also eschewed doing the standards, which was what people really freaked out mm-hmm. about in the beginning. Because, if, okay, if you're going to not do contemporary pop music, 
then you record my funny Valentine and you record. Right. And she was like, no, who's afraid of Virginia, of, of uh, uh, the big bad wolf and happy days are here again and cry me a river. And people are like, these are not, this doesn't sell any records. You can't. She's like, watch it. Yeah. Watch it. Uh, you know, her, her basically beginning of her career was little clubs in the village and uh, the Bonsoir is really the first place she was properly recorded. Columbia recorded her there after signing her but before doing a first album thinking that her first album would be live album Mm -hmm. from the Bonsoir nightclub and um, on Just for the Record which is a later compilation there's a few of these tracks. I can't wait to talk about that because Just for the Record is the where she just gave fans I would say one of the greatest gifts ever ever ever. created of all time and I think for, for my diva I I, I would just die. Can we just well, t- why hasn't it happened for her? I don't know. Why isn't Atlantic? Is it because she keeps switching record labels? I, that maybe. must be it. Something. Barbara is very unique in the fact that from 1962 to her album release next week, she has been with the same label. Right. So, you know, legally, there's nothing to untie if you want to do compilations or, or whatever. Right, or release. And we're talking about Just for the Record, which was this thing that she did mm-hmm. in 91. It was mm-hmm. a box set when artists. I think it was like they four really discs. Do that. Four discs. Two on the 60s, one on the 70s, one on the 80s. And it was just this, this I mean, literally, it was Unreleased just like, this material. is my Valentine to yeah. the people who have been with me. material. Mostly all, yeah. Live, right? There was live mm-hmm. stuff. There was, there was outtakes. I mean, it was the gamut. And really, the Bonsoir was this legendary period of her career that none of us thought we'd ever hear. You know, it was really uh, an analogous to Bet at the Baths. Mm-hmm. Right? Which we the sort of lore that you would hear about what was she was like there. What was and, the sound? Uh, the sound is fantastic. We can play the clip I brought. Um, but this is this is really gives you a sense of how radical in the beginning she was. This is what people and, loved about and, her in the beginning and began to turn on her for when she lost this quality of a huge oversized hunger, passion, drive. Not too worried about whether the sound coming out was pretty, more just ready to let it be gravelly when it was gravelly and off when it was off, and just mad. And the fact was her instrument was so great that the sound was magnificent. Right. But she's 20 here, and I think that's pretty amazing. The night is cold, the moon is new, but love is old, and while I'm waiting here, the sound of mine is that's a throwdown to, to, for me to all the people who say, oh, she's so careful. She's so pristine. Vocal. You know, it's, it's like um, uh, uh, that sound, somebody singing, a young girl singing like that in 1962 was just not normal. That was a new vocabulary for nightclub singers, especially a 20-year-old girl. That kind of confidence, that kind of give it to me now mm-hmm. passion uh, was thrilling. 
thrilling. And it really, that's what gained her the big gay audience, I think, in the very beginning. Although, And that club was gay, right? Like that yeah. Club is... Well, I don't... I mean, I'm not that old, but I, I do know that from what I've read... <clears throat> It's funny. I was reading John Gielgud's letters, book of letters, and in it he talks about a night at the Bonsoir in 1962. Doesn't mention her, but he's there and he's like, "Oh, we went to the bar, and if you were a gay man, it was like any nightclub, like Joe's Pub is now, where you could pay more money and get dinner and be at mm-hmm. a table, or you could buy a ticket to stand and you would be back by the bar standing." But it was known that at the Bonsoir, if you if you bought a ticket to stand at the bar, it would be like four or five people deep with gay men, mostly. And so you would listen to the show, watch the show, but you would also be able to, you know, you know, feel people up and have sort of illicit sort of sexual stuff going on. Not not maybe that far, but you know, certainly feel people up and and rub up against people. I mean, this was gay men. This was, in a way, the underground as it existed in 1960, 61, 62. And she was communicating very strongly to those men, and those men are who won her the talent contests at the Lion, which was an overtly gay club that she first sang at before the Bonsoir. And those are the people who loved her, supported her. It was a mixture of feeling like they wanted to protect her, you know, she was too young to be in a nightclub or let alone sing in one, you know, and, 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 and she seemed vulnerable and yet she seemed strong. She seemed feral and yet she seemed demure, uh, but deeply, deeply emotional. And, um, I, I think something in that touched gay people. So you remember when the chip was put in your head, when you sat with your family and you watched funny girl, Yeah. uh, Nick and I talk about when, after our fandom, having bet come out with something in the moment, you know, that that experience of getting something right, uh, you know. An album release. Album release or something. Oh, when release. you first were a fan, but when there was a new product. Yeah, there's right. a new yeah. product and what you've got that? to consume it wholesale. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you have that? Uh, uh, well, e- e- or a memory some The way we like were. That. Right, okay. The way we were. The film and the song and the album. Because that album is different. Well, there's a studio album with, uh, right. you know, with songs. That uh-huh. was a number one. I think it's album. one of my favorite albums. It's a really beautiful, beautiful sort of uh, contemplative album. Um, and then there's the soundtrack album to the movie, which is just basically instrumental. But the um, the which that, has a turban. The turban is the studio album. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, she that that was pretty big. But I mean, 1970, everything changed. What do you mean? Clive Davis came to her on the set of Hello, Dolly, it is said, and said, you're not selling as well anymore. Your style has to change. You're too old-fashioned. People don't want to hear. Now, and her sales were declining in the late 60s, um, her studio album sales. I want to get you together with Richard Perry. I want you to listen to some Laura Nero songs. I want you to listen to some contemporary music, some Joni Mitchell, and I want you to see if you could even do a couple of sessions with this guy, Richard Parry, and see if you don't like the sessions, we'll throw them out and we can put out whatever you want. But we think this would be wise. And she said, I really don't. She said, I'll do the session, but I'm very skeptical. I'm going to look foolish. And <clears throat> they recorded Stony End and mm-hmm. the, a lot of the, the tracks on Stony End. And that was 
a huge moment. And I came into knowing her right then or right a year or so after that. And so her whole persona was shifting then from this 1960s sort of glamorous hair piled high on the head and, you know, beautiful coiffures and gowns, you know, to sort of long streaked blonde hair living in California. This period of more natural caftans, you know, uh, sort of uh, Ramirez Canyon, Barbara, you know, um, she lost a lot of fans. Uh, in New York, but then she gained, of course, a whole lot more than that by, by this mainstream move. And um, I had since I was just discovering the material from the 60s, and now here was this music coming out. Now, for me, it was just like orgy. It was just an orgy of music and styles. And during this period in the 70s, every year there was another album or two. Every year there was a new movie or a television special or both. It was a really heady time to become a fan. Hmm. So that's so cool. Yeah. You were becoming a fan in her. She really prime. was prolific prime. around that time. I yeah. mean, she was just the seventies making... was just like boom 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 boom, 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 and the styles were shocking. You had in one in nineteen seventy six at the beginning of the year you had her classical album. At the end of the year you had the Star Is Born soundtrack. What pop singer? before, during, or since, would have the audacity to put out a classical album and something that was such a reach into pop rock Mm -hmm. within six months of each other. And that classical one was in French, right? It was in five different languages. Like, (laughs) that is crazy. It's crazy. She could have so easily looked foolish. And she, she was like, I just don't care. And the voice was operating at the height at that point would do pretty much anything she told it to do. And she was communicating something truthful to people that they were receiving and being, and they were excited by. And that, 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 that pop sound, I just, I love it so much. Could we play, could we play from, this is from the, not Martina, but the next one, Sweet Inspiration. This is from her concert for George McGovern in 1972, her fundraising concert. And, um, but this is conducted by Quincy Jones. The backup singers are Ray Charles backups. It's just like as far from lover come back at the bonsoir as you can fucking get. (laughs) Play it. She is just swinging. She is rocking. You're giving us a rockers run. Yes, yes. yes, I I really. But that's like full on like Motown sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huge. Yeah, but just just sort of uh, fearless during. I mean, it's it's so interesting when you were just talking about someone who has that much range. She never recorded this way, but I feel like the only other person 
with it, this much vocal range was Aretha Franklin, mm-hmm. who could literally sing opera. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Aretha never chose to record a lot of that stuff, yeah. and she didn't really change her image over the years as much. I mean, she did have image. No, changes. the comparison is really fair. I think that that's that's really the only other person I can think. You know, you watch Aretha Franklin st- sing Nessun Dorma at the Grammys, that legendary moment, mm-hmm. and, and yeah. which she replaced. Yeah, when. Um, Placido to me, uh, or Pavarotti. 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 Uh, yeah, there's there's no question. I mean, they're two two of the really great, great, great singers, and just like singers who also were like musical arrangers and had so much control and like real pioneers in terms of like what female singers could do or what their power could be. Yes, I think you're very right about that. I think what 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 Aretha is to soul music, to R and B music, Barbara is to female traditional pop singing. Mm-hmm. To me, she's the Maria Callas of pop. Yes. The, the, that kind of dynamic range, mm-hmm. that kind of <clears throat> able to pull it way back and an ability to let loose and um, and always authentically never really seems a real reach. I, I, I think that's true about her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that, that her voice ever seems like a reach? Well, I mean... It's crazy when you just watch the voice come out of that. Yeah. It's like just... it's. Yeah, it's frightening. I mean, she's seventy six years old now, and you know, it's 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 a you you can see moments where the voice isn't quite doing exactly what she wants it to do anymore. And she's still so smart, but she's very shrewd about so where to go to the well and where not. And if she's in concert, uh, if she's going to go for that big high note somewhere, she's going to pull back and calibrate earlier. You know, she's she's pretty shrewd. I also think that. she's playing with her lower notes too right mm-hmm. now, and, and actually doing kind of more of the the ground the earthy singing yeah bring in, which she knows she's capable of i'm like and i can see her knowing where how to do that yeah. and you told me one of your questions for me was going to be what would you do for the last act of her yes, career please, give it and to us. Uh, what changes would you make in her direction my answer was going to be i'd have her work with new record producers and i'd have a different kind of sound but then she's just put out this record don't lie I've never to me heard her sound like that like what? Like that. Like that song. I was like, yeah. this is yeah. so different. Yeah. And, and what? Don't lie to me? Yes. I, yeah. When I heard it, I was. I had to say, am I listening to Barbara Streisand? Yeah. I so know, suddenly she's a step she... ahead of me. She's like, I think I should work with a yeah. different producer. And I want actually to do to revisit my pop period roots and not be sort of a god, do, do sort of, oh, you know what I mean? It's, it's just a tempo it, song, too. It's like a, a yeah. tempo that I don't. That she doesn't doesn't really. It's a very unusual record for her. It's a very unusual. The whole record. thing is so yeah. fascinating to me, um, and she obviously really. <laughs> we're getting in that. She obviously released that like just gorgeous image of her in a well. Yeah, yeah. As, like the, yeah. as a teaser because well. she's announced she announced yeah. she's like just get ready at like six a.m. or something yeah. the yeah. next day and yeah. everyone. <laughs> yeah, but what have we all felt like the last two years? Like we've been like we're yeah. at the bottom of a well. Yes, and we're shouting at a wall, and and um, <laughs> you know, it's, but it's a gorgeous glittered wall in yeah. a gorgeous <laughs> gown. Look, in this political moment, feels like we're either, you're either leaning into it and talking about it, right. or you're in reaction to it which is equally legitimate, like I'm in this silly-ass play right now, well, that's to give people a laugh so that they don't have to look at it right. for a minute. But I think she's just, in a moment, with this album she's releasing next week, I saying, love it. We're damn the torpedoes, I'm in. Well, we've and, got to play. We've got to play. And we're just jumping. We're going from yeah. the 70s, and we're going I know, all we're way. all over Literally the right now. That's okay. <laughs> that's okay. Play that Don't History. Lie That's what we're doing. Out. That's what we're doing. Just a play. history podcast. Yeah. This is a Love Barbara podcast. How do you sleep? How do you sleep? 
Everyone answers to someone, boys. <laughs> and the and that person is Barbara Streisand. So we all answer That's to right. in the end. <sighs> well, let's talk about Barbara's stars born and then we rainbow cover. road that's what the barber version was initially going to be called rainbow road what? i mean we yeah. did so all of our fans are oh i didn't know that mm-hmm. she wasn't going to call it a stars born initially that's the gayest name of anything rainbow road Fuck well you're doing a ba- gay podcast girl. I know. The podcast is gay <laughs> As shit. the other gayest things that her hairdresser boyfriend wasn't a rumor that he uh directed a lot of it no he didn't direct but he is that the rumor though well have you seen the movie shampoo yeah, yeah, yeah. That's sort of based on John Peters. Okay. John Peters is a legendary figure who, in the in the mid seventies, had all these salons around uh, town and um, went to do hair for Barbara Streisand and never left. They became uh, lovers. Uh, he produced her Butterfly album, although I don't know what he really did, not God knows. And um, then the Starsborn project started, and he first was going to produce it. Then he was going to direct it, and the whole town was like, what the? He's never directed. What are you doing? It's your hairdresser. It's ridiculous. And that's where the huge controversy about the two of them as a couple, you know, what's she doing giving control to this guy? Ultimately, he produced it. Okay. In the way very similar to that Sid Luft produced the 1954 movie, Judy Garland's Husband. It wasn't a dissimilar situation. Um, you know, a man who she could be controlling the film, although Judy had the great George Cukor directing, and Barbara just got some guy, basically, so that she could direct it herself. When you saw, did you see the Judys before you saw Barbara's? I don't remember. Actually, I don't remember, because that was 76. I don't remember whether that was on TV before. Okay. But I you remember seeing the Barbara? Oh, my God. It's it's really one of the great magic moments of Barbara fandom because you can sit and you can deride that film all day and night. But the truth is, Christmas 1976, having been a a fan who kids couldn't relate to my fandom of Barbara. I had to keep it kind of quiet. You know, it was weird. Funny Lady was not a big event in my high school. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't walk around and say, my family gathered, and a chip went in my brain. No, didn't talk about any of that. Kept it, like, nice and personal in my little little box. And then A Star is Born came out. And Star is Born, I mean, I remember going on the opening day. The the line was was sold out. All the screenings in blizzards all over the place. It was the number two movie of the year after Rocky. The album was number one forever. The song was... Constantly on the radio, it was evergreen. And suddenly, yeah, and suddenly in my high school, girls had her picture in their locker. Suddenly, she was in the malls of America. Just she was, she was everybody's favorite. Superstardom. Yeah, everybody's favorite, and that was the beginning of. And I never expected that kind of a period Whoa. as a fan. I was like, oh my god, everybody loves her. Everybody, and uh, I have really such feeling about A Star is Born, you know? When I put want to put on a movie of hers and I can't play, pay complete attention and I'm sort of doing things around the house or something, I'll put on that movie. I love the excess of it. I love how of its moment it is in, in 1976. And more than everything else, and it wasn't until I saw this new version that I was able to go and appreciate it fully. Barbara knew even then. That is... A woman's movie. That is a movie about a woman. That was the thing that she did with that. She made that woman into a self-possessed, strong, 
self-sufficient character. And uh, it's very moving to me to now go back and look at how cl- how much she risked by doing that. Because it played into the archetype of Streisand as control freak, as narcissist. But it also gave her the ability to say, no, the character won't change her name. No, the character could actually go on losing this man if she had to. Actually, she goes to the man and says, you better fucking straighten up or I'm going to walk the hell out of here. So did you love did you love the hit did you love the song that she won the academy award for which is one of the few songs who, who Barbara? she wrote yeah evergreen oh it's the greatest it's just great i love it in its original version because it's a great production a great recording and the actual the actual moment in the movie where they sing it she sings it with him sort of improvising along with her is one of the most elegant mo- moments in any of her movies to, to me musically that all of her stuff is sung live in the movie as it is in the new movie too so she's singing this live and the camera is in a one take that doesn't move they're moving this way and then moving back showing him showing them in a two shot that goes into a close-up that goes back into a two shot ending in a close-up and the improvisation playfulness between the two of them it's just the best moment of the movie Two lights that One of the That's few songs she wrote. She wrote this new one we just played. Though. Oh, did she? Mm-hmm. Get out of town. Because that's, you know, she won the Academy Award for that. And I think, I, I was hungry. I was like, keep no, writing, Barbara. Because she's been very gracious about it. I, I'm, she, she came to the set. She talked to them. She, she, she saw it. She said it. She said it's very good. I think she's been, I don't know if, if this is correct, but I feel like lately she's been just very gracious about a lot of things. Like she finally <laughs> went and saw Bet Live. Which I think is the first what? time that that ever happened. She went to the Staples Center and saw Bet in oh, that's the show. Great. And I know I had like read a lot that it was like a really big thing for Bet to have Barbara there at the Staples Center. But I just feel like Barbara has just been like really kind of coming back. She, I just felt like she was in hiding for so long and wasn't engaging. As well, much. you know what I, my analysis of that is is that I think you, for the first twenty five years of that career, okay. there was just no, there was so much life force poured out of her. This is a little weird, but, you know, from 62 to 85, there was just constant work, constant work, 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 work. And then after 85, there was work. And then she met this man and she was. Who are we talking about here? Jim Brolin. Josh. Jim Jim. Brolin. And she's got married and she's like, I'm tired. And I'm interested in other things, and I'm going to explore them, and I'm happy, and I, I have personal happiness, and 
who can begrudge a person in their 60s and their 70s saying, you know what? No, I don't. I'll do I'll work when I want to work. And some of that work for me got a little gauzy and a little sentimental. And I and I and um, because she stopped touring. Yes. For how long? Back to in, touring. She never that, toured. What? Uh, she never really toured until uh, 94. She did little limited tours in the 60s, and she okay. did lots of dates, individual little dates. But then the live 60s. performances, I know she did like in 87. She did the She did like a concert. political fundraiser, and this thing I played you there, that was a one-off political fundraiser. I didn't but realize that she never toured. No, she, she... 94 was the big... Is it because she was moment. a perfectionist? I'm sure, like, right? and also because there weren't teleprompters. Really? She said that. There, there, didn't, there weren't teleprompters. When she did the Central Park concert, she... Uh, went up on her on the lyrics to a song, and she was so flipped out by it. Uh, I mean, she was in the middle of Central Park with 160,000 people. Obviously, it's a it's a freaky moment, and she uh, she and there were death threats. The you, you know there were snipers. It was all very weird. And she was like, "I'm going to retreat from this kind of performing. I don't want to do it anymore." So the the concerts in '94. That tour was we have to, because that was I, when you see the opening of, uh, on the video of this, they have people talking. It's like nothing you've seen. I mean, people are crying. Yeah, yeah. They are saying she saved my life. I mean, they look like. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, you know what I'm talking I about. I do. I do. And I start crying seeing it because I know what they're talking about. And she, I was just like, I, I don't. I know she didn't, she didn't plan this, but that concert was like. Life-altering. Yeah, yeah. And she was still in voice that could do anything. Good voice. Yeah, really good voice. So 94. 94. That's the white suit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she comes down on the... Right? She starts with just the greatest song to start with. Yeah, as if we never said goodbye from Sunset Boulevard. And uh, and she's on this... Uh, she was obsessed with that during that period with um, American uh, colonial sort of... Uh, design so the whole set is based on monticello you know and it's white sort of american furniture and so it's it's very controlled very barbara in the 90s but within that my god she's singing everything you wanted her to ever sing and to be at madison square Garden it was a long had, concert yeah it was a too big two act motherfucker with no <laughs> opening acts or foolishness no. and you could get this is this is the kind of barbara there is you could get the full or you could get the highlights on CD. I had the see. This is the thing where I did. You were like, I'm in a little. I'll buy the highlights. I got well. I got the highlights. Right. I mean, I was ten, but I well, saw all you missed out on was all the blathering talk. That's it. Right. Then I realized when I watched the concert, well, I was like, Oh, she does a whole. She does a whole therapy act. Yeah, no, we don't need that. But, <laughs> Never see. 
we're we crying. Can't, we can't even oh stop crying. Oh my god, crying. Oh my god. Oh, guys, to be a Madison Square Garden. <laughs> After you ta- all you? the years, yeah. Were you After, there? Of course. Were yeah. you living in New York? Yeah, I was living here. And um, I, I mean, to just be there for that was just. I mean, how much money did you have to spend? On Not that, that much compared to, to to what, what people pay now for concert tickets, even that are just ordinary. Um, I mean, I have friends who came to see that Springsteen thing, and they were paying twelve hundred dollars or fifteen hundred. I don't know where they get it, but uh, I probably paid three fifty for that. And um, uh, that beginning, yeah. I mean, because it's almost shocking that you're in the room with that voice. You know, it's like a fake out. Mm. You're like, that voice, I never thought I'd be in the room with that voice live. If you were a fan of my generation, she was never going to sing publicly again. She was not going to do concerts. So you'd sort of made your peace with that, which was part of why Star is Born was so great, because there were these live sequences. It's like, that's what she would be like if we could see her in concert. Mm -hmm. But... This event was like she comes out and she opens her mouth and that voice from the record comes out. It sounds stupid, but it it was truly jarring. And the emotional thing talked to the part of me from 1972 who Mm -hmm. got the chip implanted and the Mm -hmm. little boy who watched the movie on TV. It was going right to that place. And just the sound of the voice was... And for everybody in the arena, I mean, that was so, so special. She was never going to do it again. Then, of course, it's the only way you can make money now, so she does it. Oh, she tours more now. She's, she tours more now. It's really so amazing, though, to be in that huge room of fans. I love that about... What the Bat Midler ones? To when, when I, yeah, just being in... Or if you're a fan of anything, to be in the room and you know, like... Oh, all of Madison Square Garden loves this person, yeah, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when Nick and I talk about seeing, we had seen her separately in concert, and then mm-hmm. when we started together, I think we both just felt like we were thir- did that thing. Yeah. Where you do that flip. Where yeah. you're like, I can't believe this is, this. I've waited for this moment. Yeah. Imagine this moment, and now I'm in that room. Yeah. I'm in the room with her. And that, in being in the room yeah. is something that you just, I remember feeling um, overwhelmed. By um, almost like I couldn't take being in the room with that greatness. Tell us the story <laughs> of when you met Barbara. Well, I was uh, I was twenty. I was studying uh, acting in Pittsburgh at Carnegie Mellon University. I came to New York for a Christmas for a weekend around Christmas time, and I saw theater plays, and I saw a bunch of things: Dream Girls, Nine. And the last day, I, my friend I was with wanted to go see something else. And so I went to the box office of Torch Song Trilogy and I got one ticket by myself. And often if you do that on the day of, you get a really fantastic ticket because they've released the house seats. Mm-hmm. So um, I had a ticket in the third row, like four seats in from two, three seats in from the aisle. And the two seats next to me were empty. Uh, and the play started and two women came in and sat down in these two seats. The one to my right had a big fur coat that she flounced open and started to get out sucking candies from her bag for her and her friend. And I was like, oh, come on. Play was very amusing. I'm enjoying the play. Whatever the lights came up at the intermission, I turned to my right and Barbara was sitting next to me. Um, I was alone, so there was nobody I could grab, nobody I could could help me <laughs> my if it happened now i'd be dead but i was 20 so my heart was strong but the my heart rate like quadrupled in a second 
I sat there by myself going, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? What am I going to do? The good thing about Torch Song Trilogy was that it had two intermissions. So I knew that I had a minute. I would, if I was going to talk to her, and I knew I had to, it was my one chance. I was going to do it in the second intermission. So I sat there during, and she didn't leave her seat during the second. And people are coming down and looking and then going back. They're too scared to ask to say hello or anything. She's, you know, it was a very weird vibe, but the place was electric with people talking about the fact that she was there. And um, so then the second act happened. I couldn't tell you a thing about what happens in the second act of Torch Song Trilogy. I don't have a clue. I just sort of out of the corner of my eyes watched her watching it. And then the second intermission came and I decided, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go outside first. So I stood up and I made everybody to my left move so I could get out of the row, which was like 30 people. Because you weren't going to disturb Barbara. To- no, I wasn't going to walk, make her move. So I got out. I went outside. I breathed a couple times. Everybody's like, oh, my God, Barbara Streisand's in there. Barbara Streisand. And I'm like, yeah, I, I, I'm aware. I came back in down the aisle where she was. And I thought, well, I have a perfect excuse. I'm sitting next to her. I have to get to my seat. So I said, excuse me. And uh, the two of them sort of shifted so I could walk by to my seat. And I... I said, it's now or never. And I went, excuse me, Miss Streisand, just saying the words was preposterous. I said, excuse me, Miss Streisand. And she looked up at me like, say it quickly, please. And I said, "Um, I'm studying acting and you've been an inspiration to me my whole life. And I want to thank you. That's what I said. And she looked up and she said, that's very nice. Thank you. And I reached my hand out, didn't decide to, just did it, reached my hand out. She put that hand into my hand and she said, thank you. And then I went and sat down and I think the third act of a play happened. I don't know. (laughs) I look forward to seeing Michael's version because I'll find out what happens at the end of that. Your hand was touched. Yeah. By the hand of the almighty angel. It was amazing. Okay, so this is a game we call Flops and Bops, and we can be quick, we you know, or it can be long, but we talk about a flop is something that you're like, oh, I wish you wouldn't have done that, uh-huh. or something that... You didn't do this on your Bette Midler episode. No, well, we, maybe when We're we retape it, we will. We're probably the Bette Midler episode until the beginning of time. That's the big joke. I think we'll be fucking <laughs> taping that. <laughs> I don't think it's fair you forced this on me, but you haven't answered for my I night in black Michael's leather yourselves. I love my night in black leather. Well, we have our flops. I mean, Bet has <laughs> so many flops. We could flop. We flop talk Every all the time. Every movie she made yeah. after First Wives Club. <laughs> Except then she found me. That's a good movie. So, but what, but what is okay, it? So, okay, the so thing was is, a flop or the thing was terrible? I'm going to introduce again. So uh, we're going to do flops and bops. And flops are things that you, for you, are kind of a flop with Barbara. That you're like, oh, I don't like this track. Or something that was a flop in, you know, perception. And bops are... Weird little nuggets that people don't know. Yeah, flops are going to be easy. The other ones are going to be uh, the other ones are going to be cha- challenging. But but l- let's try. Give us a flop. The mirror has two faces. Oh. I don't like the mirror has two faces. The mirror has two faces. Uh, although she did get a lovely performance out of Lauren Bacall that has is was is really important to her legacy. Mm-hmm. And Who's I think your that's sister good. in that. That's uh, yes, that's the that's the wonderful what's her name who was married to uh, Tom Cruise. Nicole Kidman? No, before that. Oh, Mimi. Mimi Rogers. Rogers. She's really fun in that, too. She's funny. But the the picture, I remember going to the Ziegfeld, and I had defended 
you know, I had defended Barbara for the Prince of Tides for, you know, criticism about too much beauty. I had uh, defended her on various accounts for this kind of thing. And I remember being in that movie theater at the Ziegfeld watching that movie and going, I can't. I really think this is ill-advised. <laughs> well, you know, I remember us seeing it in the movie theaters together. Or you claim we didn't. I claim I took a girlfriend and she said, why am I doing this? And I, my mom was driving and I said, because it's supposed to be a good film. <laughs> Again, not understanding that no one else was going to that. And I think I said, mom, mm. isn't it going to be a good film? I had, I had that, you know. I already I found me found someone was already out, so I was yeah. like, "Well, I know that's going to be good music." Right. It was the only song really in the film. I didn't know that, but I think you saw it again with me because I, I remember probably saw it twice. There's so many boom mics in the shot in that movie. I kept remembering. Well, there's the a moment where, they, where where she storm. And I just, this was one of the things. There's a moment of a real late scene with her and Pierce Brosnan where she's now gorgeous. I've, I haven't seen the movie since 1996. It was so oh, traumatizing. Because it's traumatizing. Oh. But there was a moment where she's with uh, uh, Pierce Brosnan and she's gorgeous now. And she looks like a Barbara Streisand album cover, like moving through a movie. And she's like, she gets up, she th- flips her hair and she walks. I don't need you anymore, Gregory or whatever his name is. And she flounces out the door and the camera clearly goes by a crew member with a can of Coke in his hand. And I'm like... She was in the editing room for six months, and she was so mesmerized by how great she looks in this shot that she didn't see a cameraman with a, a crew member with a can of coke. So there's a flop. Uh, my bop is I don't I don't really know why. I mean I know it's from her one of her greatest albums, one of her um, most popular albums, Guilty. Yeah. But the love inside is such a um, transfixing song. Oh my God, what a great choice! Yeah. It's just it's yeah. it, and I don't I'm getting shivers talking about it right now. I probably listened to that song a thousand times because it's so strange and enchanting. So the word is goodbye Makes no difference how the tears are crying It's over I can make believe you need me when it's over And we can't take it home The fire that was burning When all around was turning The dream we sailed was far Give it another love inside. The love inside. The love inside. 
Well, lyrically, that's an album unlike all the others because Barry Gibb, she just said, make me an album. He's, right. He was so popular at that time. She was like, I'll sing whatever you want. Right. Sing. She never did that before or since. And, and so the lyrically, they're very uh, abstract, those lyrics on that album. And so she was never, never used to be drawn to that kind of material. And on, on that album, it's such a gift to have her singing such odd things that are so mysterious. It was mysterious. It wasn't true. I, I love that album. She, I so think she loved deep. that record, too, because she put it on her greatest hits. She put that track on Love She Inside. did, didn't she? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just think it's a great, great, great. It's one of my top five Desert Island albums. Yeah. Um, I have a bop when she eats those crab legs at the end of that Netflix special. Major for me I was like yeah, I love that you've included this you're like we're gonna eat some crab and it's like yeah. her claws versus the crab claws yeah. I just love it yeah I think I only saw that once but that, oh, no. the crab claw it's moment a fa- that's good I like when she does the Willy Wonka song I have a bop on that one mm-hmm. oh no I, when I went to see it at the Barclay Center I loved the show the fact that she sang from Funny Lady even admitted she made Funny Lady what she sing from Funny Lady isn't this better and how lucky can you get she sang both of them Whoa. And uh, we never thought. She, I mean, she's she's pretended that movie didn't exist for now forty years. She's she 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 met Prince Charles, for example, on the set of Funny Lady when they were pre-recording the music, and um, she says she shows the picture and she says this is from What's Up. Do- I was I was making What's Up. No, you weren't. You were making Funny Lady. You have to admit you made it. <laughs> I enjoy it. What's the problem with Funny Lady? She just pretends it didn't happen. So, yeah. I, I, I have to say, because this is, I think, my greatest Barbara thing of all time. And it doesn't matter. You, we're not going to play it because you have to look this up. My bop is when she was promoting the Funny Lady, when she did the concert uh, for Funny Lady. Right, right. And she has that long, that Of hair. course. That's and the best way we were version the, uh, ever. The, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that, I, it's, just, just look it up, y'all, because she is, I think, some of the most gorgeous looks I've ever seen mm-hmm. and she just tackles the songs in ways that are so exciting and uh, yeah 1975 um, and it's the first time she sang The Way We Were after it had been this huge hit and um, it's amazing and that TV show was live that was, was shown live from the Kennedy Shoot. Center. And I was rehearsing. Oh, God, I was 13. And I was rehearsing for community <laughs> theater. And I pretended I was sick that night so that I could stay home and watch that show. What was Funny the show girl you to were f- doing? Peter Pan, y'all. Who are you playing? Smee. Oh, you'd be a great Smee. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't important enough to play Hook. But, uh, you know, Captain Hook. Yet. Not yet. But, um, uh, uh, yeah, and I remember going into rehearsal the next day and people going, you don't, you're not sick. You weren't sick. It was the Barbara Streisand show on TV last night. <laughs> okay, here's a flop from me. Yes. Uh, a Love Like Ours. This is an album she made right after 89. getting married. 99. 99. A Love I Like Ours. I this one. Yeah. It's her, like, it's her it's James, a Brolin, James album. Brolin album. And it's, uh, that's. Uh, unfortunate, but I'm going to go straight to a bop because I haven't gotten to do one yet. And, uh, my bop is her Jean Mappel Barbara album, which is my favorite album of the sixties. Martina is a song that I told you to cue up. Let's get there. Let's get there, girl. And, but to, 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 to set the, what I love about this, you know, we played this Bonsoir track earlier and there's this thing about performers where they're praised if they give their all. You know what I mean? People say that about singers or actors. Oh, my God. She just gave you everything she had. It's so thrilling. She just ripped open. Yeah. 
And that's kind of who Barbara was in the very beginning. But very soon after that, she began to be, play with the idea that less is more. Mm. Like, don't give everything. Don't beg for love. Don't beg for sympathy. Pull back a little bit. She began to do that in the mid-60s. And I think this song, I love this song. Neither of you will know it. It's what the kids call a deep cut. And, um, <laughs> it's, and deep it's, it's, it's also with Michelle Legrand, who uh, I think has always been a great collaborator for her. I can see Martina as a child of three. Sad seclusion of her nursery. Go outside, Martina. Go outside and play. Never speak, Martina. Put your toys away So her days were loveless And her nights the same When she cried for someone No one mystery in that performance there's anger in that performance mm -hmm. there's dynamic in the performance but there's also i can't give you i can't sh if i showed you everything i would uh, I, I couldn't live so i'm showing you just a little bit yeah. and that's that's what i love about it and that's really what i love about her too she's there's taste you know there's taste and there's I wish I could remember that interview where she talked about this issue because I've always remembered it in my acting too. You know, don't, don't go for everything. Don't show what you're feeling so directly, always. Mm. Make people wonder what you're feeling. You know, it's a very hard, sort of delicate subject, but she's always been quite, quite brilliant at that. Bob. Such a good Bob. Yeah. Okay, I want to play some quick, just some quick runoffs real quick. Okay. And then I think we'll we played like one. nine songs. We're just, well, yeah, nine songs. Nine songs. <laughs> favorite movie? Just real quick. Favorite movie? Oh, bam. Okay. Uh, 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 I, I, I love Up the Sandbox. And uh, I love um, Funny Girl We've Talked About, The Way We Were. 
But the sandbox was the um, one. Irvin Kirshner. It was a real bomb. It was a real flop with the public. Um, But it was like a real feminist. Yeah, yeah, 1972. And because of the failure of that, I think she never risked that much in her film career again. She started started producing her. With that. Yep. Mm -hmm. What is that fandom like for you in in a community? Like Nick and I talk about how the fandom between Bette was just between us. But then other people have other experiences of finding... Friendships. And I've been community. kind of traumatized by, by reaching out to other fans. <laughs> yeah, because I, there's one that I have. His name is Richard Giamanco, and he lives in LA, and he's known as sort of one of the, the great sort of collectors of stuff. He's a real sort of uber fan. We went to college together, and and so he's a friend of mine who shares this. But whenever I've been introduced, I have to say, I don't like having to say this, but when I've been introduced to fans, like real fans, they've been competitive. They've been like, who are you and how many times have you seen her and what are you – oh, you're wrong about that. You know, I get very uncomfortable. Because there's like it's an ownership. It's very personal to me. Yeah. It's very personal right. to me and I don't want to win a contest for it and I don't want to know more than you know. And I don't want to – I just want to talk about it the way I just talked about Martina to you. Mm-hmm. It's that personal to me and I don't want it made into something – crass or competitive or or like that so i don't participate like on online forums where people argue about things and so i just don't i'm personally not comfortable with it tom thank you so much for coming on the podcast oh you're welcome but there's so much more we have to go down an all night long k-hole or we have to go down talking about there's so many did the guilt trip work or did it not how did we've been through all this and we haven't talked about yentl it's appalling i mean this is i would say like and i yeah we got to get on record on this like this is not rushmore (laughs) diva do you know what i I mean like there's no and i and so y'all just buckle in if you're Still <laughs> because if you think this is the only time we're going to have Tom on to talk about Barbara, you're insane. Who's doing so, your Judy? We don't know yet. Oh, my God. We haven't you done think the, this is problematic. We call Judy the grandmama, the high priestess of <laughs> the Supreme. The, the Supreme. And then, <laughs> so, Barbara's like, you know. She's like in the, in the ladies in waiting. Yeah. 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 Oh. So we're, we're, we're always going to come back to this Barbara. Well, well thank you for having me. It's yeah. been such a joy to talk to you. I could um, talk to you love- about we All love to it. go out on something. Is there a track, like any track that you can think of that you'd like to go out on? Um, let's go out on the um, on the uh, film version of My Man from Funny Girl, the end of Funny Girl. I think that's my number one. Why wouldn't it be? It's sung live. I think it's that's my pro- number one. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Why wouldn't it be? Why wouldn't it be? Fucking life-changing when you hear it. This won the Oscar for her, this performance. You'll never know. All my life is just despair. But I don't care. When he takes me in his arms, the world is bright. All right. What's the difference if I say I'll go away When I know I'll come back On my knees someday For whatever my man is I am his Forever 
whole fucking note. Oh, I have to say, <laughs> play the whole you know, 